I want to take a quick look to the wall on the left. That's the first half of our mission statement, making disciples of many peoples. And over on the right, who will follow Jesus Christ in authentic worship. But if we're going to live our mission statement, we not only need to regularly be reminded of that, which is why it's there and on our bulletins, but we also need to keep on increasing our understanding of what it looks like in the practical dimensions. And so, not only at the beginning of every year do I devote one sermon on some aspect of our mission statement, every time as we go through the year, whenever it is appropriate to do so, I draw your attention to that again. And this summer, as we've been continuing our study on the Psalms, I want to focus on a Psalm this morning that... Uh, will in fact do exactly that for us. And that very last phrase, authentic worship. Uh, I want to take a look at that this morning as we look, work our way through Psalm 33. And I trust it will just kind of increase our understanding again of at least some other dimensions of authenticity when it comes to worship. And so, uh, let's begin again with the verses we read some time ago. The psalm opens with a call to worship. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to Him on the ten-string lyre. Sing to Him a new song and play skillfully and shout for joy. This call to worship is an invitation to the people of God for appropriate and audible public singing to the accompaniment of skillfully played instruments. I want to begin by focusing on that verse and phrase one which says, It is fitting for the upright to praise Him. Periodically, whenever we engage on the subject of worship, I've confronted you with a question that we should never lose sight of. And it is simply this. Whenever we see or experience an individual who either overtly or covertly tries to draw attention to themselves and is seeking for praise, we instinctively respond to that as something that is negative. Either it is flowing out of pride, in which case we don't like the people, or it is flowing out of a deep sense of insecurity and a need to be loved, in which case we have compassion on the people. But either way, we don't think it's not something that that feels comfortable. And so the question I've often asked you not to lose sight of is, why is it that something that is totally inappropriate for a human being to do becomes completely appropriate when God is the subject? So that worship leaders can get up here and say, let's praise Him, and God commands us to praise Him. Why is that not arrogance or indicative of some kind of shortcoming. I shared this story with you a long time ago, I think, but it bears repetition in this context. It happened during our, the very first time we had an opportunity to, to spend any time in Europe at all. It was in 1984. Our kids were 11 and 8 years old, and uh, Peter was coming with us, so we spent a week in uh, Holland, and then we spent camping for one week in Interlaken. And I remember one morning just driving through the Alps with this majestic alpine scenery all around us, you know. Every now and then I just kept, kept saying to Vijay and Sheila in the back seat, they were 11 and 8 at the time, just look, look. And after a few seconds of that, all I'd hear is look up, oh, and head back into their comics. You know? Now it's quite understandable that kids of 11 and 8 might respond that way, but if adults were doing that with alpine scenery all on them, you'd say, look, that's not fitting. That isn't the right response. That the sheer majesty and the beauty of the creation around you demands a different kind of a response. It demands maybe pulling over, stopping, looking, gaping, and then turning to one another and saying, Wow, wasn't that great? We should come back here again. Now, the other interesting thing to note is Neither the children's reaction in refusing to look at the mountains, nor ours in paying attention to them, made any difference to the glory of the Alps. They were just as glorious before anybody praised them. They will remain as glorious if nobody praises them. 
But it has to do with what is fitting response. It says more about the people than about uh, the mountains. So it is with God. God's glory and God's majesty is completely unaffected by whether people praise Him, or people insult Him, or ignore Him. But when it comes to the question of what is fitting for you and me, what is fitting for you and me when we are confronted with God's majesty and greatness is to respond to Him. And so every Sunday morning when the worship leaders come and call you to worship, please remember you are being called to do something that is a fitting response, that you were fit for, you were made for. And whenever we do what we are made to do, we always experience joy. So just remember that at the beginning. Not only that, we're called to sing joyfully. You know those opening words sing in the Hebrew lexicon. The, the definition is interesting. The word is to make loud, public, melodic and rhythmic words with a focus on the joy that it expresses. In other words, it calls for appropriately audible singing, not screaming loudly that interferes with other people. Appropriately audible singing that is also enthusiastic. When I was thinking about that, my mind went back to many, many years ago in the stadium watching the Blue Jays. And you know how periodically when there's a lull in the action, there's lots of lull in the action in baseball, you know, for, for commercials and whatnot. They play these songs over the PA system to get all the people roused. And one of the common songs they used to play in those days is, We Will, We Will Rock You. And there was this old gentleman, at least he was older than me anyway, you know. And... Uh, not the kind of person you would normally associate with singing or enthusiastic response. But as soon as the song came over, he started swaying and he started singing and I could hear. And his voice, if anything, was worse than mine. <laughs> but it was an entirely appropriate response if he was a Blue Jays fan. He was excited with what was happening before him. And so, really that's what this is calling us to. Appropriately audible and enthusiastic response given who God is. Now we need help. I highly doubt whether that man would have sung if the PA system hadn't been singing. I don't think I would sing as loudly as I do if all of our worship leaders weren't up here singing, drowning out my voice. So there's appropriate audibleness in mine. Much softer than Andrea's, for example. But we need help. And so this word, this opening invitation is also given to the instrumentalists, to our worship leaders who play. They said, praise the Lord with a harp. Make music to Him. In other words, when you guys are singing, playing on your instruments, it is an act of worship. The focus has to be upon God. And some of you instrumentals who are sitting there, you're not up here this morning, but you will be another week or two from now. You need to listen. It has nothing to do with whether you're up front or behind and how well you're doing and whether people are going to praise you, all of that stuff. You begin to think along those lines, you miss the point. Because your playing, your singing is to be to God. At the same time, don't make the mistake of thinking you can be sloppy because it's all about God and not about you. We are asked to play skillfully, which means you show up for practice. Which means you practice hard and do the best that you possibly can. Not so that you will be front and center, not so that people will marvel at you, but first of all because you are offering your best to God and you are helping us worship God better, which also means you are worshiping Him. All of that is involved in this opening invitation. And then one more thing, he says, sing unto Him a new song. And I don't think newness here, always or even often refers to novelty for the sake of novelty. It's, uh, it's one of the problems of the younger generation. They get tired too soon. They want something new all the time. In fact, C.S. Lewis says it's one of Satan's fundamental ploys. Change for the sake of change. I, I think the idea of newness in the scripture has a lot more to do with freshness. It's a freshness that comes from an encounter with God. And when you encounter God in anything, it's alive. 
That's why whether the song was written yesterday or whether the song was written 400 years ago. Because the words are engaging with God who is the subject of that worship. They are infused with a fresh power to touch our minds and to touch our hearts. Which of course calls for that kind of engagement from us. What makes them new is they are the medium of an encounter with the living God. And that's as much true if you're playing the guitar as if you're singing. So that's the, the, the basic call to worship and authenticity is already uh, defined in some of these words. Now the very next, the first word of the next verse is the word for. And I want to stop there for a minute. Because this is going to address another mis- common misunderstanding when it comes to worship that makes it inauthentic at times. This comprehensive call to worship, both to the singers, to the congregation, to the musicians, has a reason. Do all of this because. You see that our songs are sprinkled liberally with the word praise and hallelujahs and let's just praise the Lord and come on everybody praise the Lord, let's clap our hands and all these words. And we make the mistake of thinking that because we use the word praise enough, we are actually praising God. That's nothing to do with praise. In fact, if you look at the reasons that the psalmist gives, the word praise doesn't happen even once. He calls us to worship for what? For by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Verse 11, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. Verse 18, But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope in his unfailing love. So this whole call to worship, this joyful singing and skillful music playing, is all because of these three things, the word of the Lord, the plans of the Lord, and the eyes of the Lord. In, in other words, it is some specific truths about this God that we are singing that makes praise what it is. Which of course has implications for the kind of songs we write. And the kind of songs that we learn and choose to sing. And so not only is worship, authentic worship fitting for us. It also needs to have content poured into it. That gives definite shape and substance to this God that we are worshipping. As, as opposed to some vague uh, stirrings of some spiritual encounter. In this particular case, he speaks about the word of the Lord, the plans of the Lord, and the eyes of the Lord as being the source of worship. So let me just kind of expand on that for us. By the way, that's why I've called the sermon substantive worship, because that's a critically important function. For worship to be authentic, it needs to be substantial as well. So first of all, verses 4 to 9 of the word of the Lord. Read this with me together. For the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. This is a focus on the God of creation as a source of our praise. And I want to just focus on a couple of words because each of these themes are worthy of whole sermons in themselves. So I've had to select the things I want to focus on this morning to illustrate to you how these can be uh, sources or uh, sub- substance for our praise. Focus on the word the starry host. You know, it refers to the star. He made the starry host by the breath of his mouth. Now, when the psalmist wrote the psalm umpteen hundred odd years ago, he probably saw all the stars he thought were available were the ones that he could see. 
lot more than he than what we can see today in our small grid and cities but nonetheless probably not an overwhelming number but today we know how many stars there are i mean our galaxy the milky way galaxy has 100 billion stars in it many of them much bigger than the sun and that milky way galaxy is only one of millions if not billions of such galaxies so the total number of the stars is an absolutely mind boggling number <laughs> And what's amazing is that the psalmist doesn't just say God made them. He says he made them by the breath of his mouth. How heavy is breath? I'm speaking right now. If I keep my hand this, way, this far, even I can't sense it. I've got to get my hand this far before I can even sense my breath. How soft and how light it is. And says that's all it takes. That's all it takes for the starry host. These billions and billions of stars to come into being by just a little breath from God. That's the power of poetry. It goes beyond our mind to grip our imaginations. Then look at the next phrase. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. There's a little asterisk there because in your footnotes in the Bible it will say it should be translated he gathers the sea into heaps. He puts the deep into storehouse. That language comes from Exodus 15. The first one came from Genesis. This one comes from Exodus when they are celebrating the deliverance through the Red Sea. And this he says, he puts the, uh, and if you look at the Exodus passage it says that he did this by the blast of his nostrils. Well, that's an amazing description. I read somewhere that when you sneeze, the air goes through your nasal passages about 120 miles an hour. But it lasts less than one second. I mean, it's, it's okay to read the history which says God caused an east wind to blow all night. Yeah? That's prose. What poetry says is God sneezed and the Red Sea opened up. What kind of a God do we have? <laughs> The breath of his mouth is enough to fling the billions of stars into space and all he has to do is to sneeze and the whole Red Sea opens up and his people go for it. That's the power of imagination because the poetry grips our hearts to expand our vision of God. Prose gives us information, poetry expands. And then when you set it to music, which is why the invitation of the first three words were, they weren't unconnected from this. When you add music to poetry, it's just a double whammy to our imagination. And we begin to feel appropriately small and we rejoice. Just a recent example of that in my own life. Some of you know that in our General Assembly in, in Ottawa, I was speaking one, one of the evenings there. And I'd been meditating on this message for months. It had been months in the making and I was growing in my anticipation, my excitement to preach. And I, the kind of subject that I was speaking on needed a whole lot of energy and uh, Wednesday, I was supposed to speak on the Thursday night. On the Wednesday morning, I woke up with those horrible telltale signs I know so well of that irritation in my throat. And I said, oh no, here we go again, you know. But I had 36 hours to pray about it. And, and every now and then I'd be wrestling with them. What if I still feel like this? How am I going to preach? Why are you doing this, God? And then one Thursday morning, I think it was, I was walking along the Rideau Canal early in the morning praying about this. And all of a sudden, the words of a song, just like Andrew, all of a sudden, the words of a song came to my mind. They were actually poetry pronounced first by Isaiah 2300 years ago and set to music by Handel only 200 years ago. <laughs> it, was, it was an excerpt from the Messiah from Isaiah chapter 40 and because it's all composed in King James, that's how I'd memorized it. And as the words went through my mind, as the music played through my ear, my confidence began to rise. Here were the words. It says, O thou that tellest good tidings to Zion, get thee up into a high mountain, lift up your voice. Be not afraid. Shout. Lift it up. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And you know, as I began to think that, I began to think, Oh, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to mount the pulpit tonight, and I'm going to lift up my voice, and I'm going to shout. 
I don't mean scream, you know me, you know. But I, I'm going to shout, I'm not going to hold back. And God was faithful. God was faithful. For 45 minutes, I was able to preach without any problem at all. But that wasn't the point. The point was that it was the song. It was the imagery. It was word, poetry, set to music that gripped my heart. Because I needed the creator God to work in my life that day. But those images helped a lot. That's what is intended to happen every weekend. As we sing. As we sing joyfully. As we hear the word of the Lord. As you hear God's word. As you are reminded. And then you worship. Because there is no substance to this God that you are worshipping. Okay. Then we move from the God of creation to the sovereign God over the nations. Verses 10 and 11. Read that with me. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. God not only creates, he governs what he creates. Creation rests on the word of God, but history rests on the plans and the purposes of God. The nations can rattle their sabers. <laughs> they can aspire to all kinds of things, but their plans can, can be and will be restrained by the plans and the purposes of God. And they cannot restrain the plans and the purposes of God. His plans and his purposes will stand throughout all generations. And in, my, in this prayer guide, I've given you many, many examples from the scriptures. Because this is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures. But here in, in, in this worship setting that we're in, I want you to listen to just a few of the majestic declarations from the Old Testament. Many of them from the mouth of Isaiah. Probably one of the most gloriously uplifting books in the Old Testament. That, that describe the comprehensive sovereignty of God over the nations and as it affects his own people. First of all, God's sovereignty over Assyria. The Lord Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be, and as I have purposed, so it will stand. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? That's God's sovereignty over Assyria. Then hundreds of years, of, <coughs> years later, excuse me, <coughs> his sovereignty over, over the king of Persia on behalf of his people Israel. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem. In Judah. And it is precisely because of God's absolute sovereignty over the nations that God, through his prophets, continually encouraged his people Israel, <coughs> when under attack from the nations, to not be afraid but to look at him and to trust him. <coughs> In Isaiah chapter 7, for example, when the southern kingdom of Judah was being threatened by an alliance of, of a king of Syria and the northern king of Israel, this is what. Hmm, God told Isaiah to tell the people, to the king of Judah. Say to him, be careful, keep calm, don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. That's what God thinks of kings. Smoldering stubs of firewood. Aram, Ephraim, Aram is Damascus, Syria. Ephraim and Ramalia's sons have plotted your ruin saying, Let us invade Judah, let us tear it apart and divide. That's their plan. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. Five words is all it takes. It will not take place. It will not happen. And then he exhorts the, his own people. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand firm at all. He wants them to stand firm in the faith that God's plans, are, are, God is sovereign over the nations. 
sadly Israel often failed and they kept running to Egypt. <clears throat> and so God often had to rebuke his people for not trusting in his sovereignty over the nations. Isaiah 30, 1-5 Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. To those who carry out plans that are mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection, but Pharaoh's protection will be your shame. Egypt's shade will bring you disgrace. Everyone will be put to shame because of a people useless to them. You, you see how foolish it is? If God is sovereign over the nations, and he's, and he's saying to his people, you trust me, and you say, no, I want to trust in that nation, that's pretty foolish because they can't help you because God is sovereign over that nation. So you run to Egypt, God says, you're not going to help my people. So what's the point, running to other nations? That's the whole point. But perhaps nowhere, nowhere is the sovereignty of God over nations as clearly demonstrated as where it applies to you and me. Because we're not Israel today, right? It's in Jesus' death and in his resurrection. For in Acts chapter 2, in the first Christian sermon that was preached on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches this. He says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders and signs, which God did among you through him. As you yourselves know. Now look at the sentence. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Yeah, you guys crucified him but it was all according to God's plan. And the amazing thing about this is God not only foiled the plans and purposes of the nations. He actually said, you go ahead and put your plans into action. And you will discover that you are actually fulfilling my plans. That to me is even more remarkable. Even more remarkable than foiling your plans and your purposes is to be so sovereign that I will let you do what you want and it will still be what I want to be accomplished. Is that amazing? That's the kind of God that we serve. And today, we've got Iran flexing its nuclear muscles. We've got North Korea flexing, saber-rattling the nuclear... Uh, they want to be nuclear. We've got Pakistan continuing to give... Um, protection to Osama bin Laden. We've got China and India gobbling up all the steel and oil we can possibly get. Is it not important for us to be reminded that God is absolutely sovereign over the nations of the world and therefore there's no need to be depressed when we hear world news. We can rejoice and we can tell, don't run to Egypt. It's useless to run to Egypt because God is sovereign over Egypt as well. He says to trust you and to trust me. And then thirdly, not only the God of creation, the sovereign God over the nations, the God of history, but the God who makes and keeps covenant with his people. Verse 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people who chose for his inheritance. Because God is absolutely sovereign over the nations of the world, there is only one way for a nation to be blessed and that is to be chosen and blessed by God sovereignly and graciously. Now God didn't do this for Israel because they deserved it. He didn't do it for Israel because they were better than the other nations. In fact, Moses reminds them in the sermon in Deuteronomy, God, did, I did not choose you because you were the greatest nation on the earth, but you were the least among all the people. I chose you because I loved you. It was my pleasure to do so. And because through them, all nations would be blessed. I mean, way back when he chose Abraham, he said, I will bless you so that all nations of the earth would be blessed. And eventually that happened when one Israelite, the true son of Abraham, the true son of David, Jesus Christ came into this world and through him all nations are being blessed today. And so you and I as the church now are part of a blessed people of God. The creator God is shown as sovereign over the whole cosmos. The God of history is shown as sovereign over what is happening in the world today. But the covenant God 
is a God who knows what is happening at the individual level. For we hear in these few verses, another metaphor, now the eyes, not the breath of the Lord, not the blast of His nostrils, but now the eyes of the Lord. From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From His dwelling place He watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all who considers everything they do. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear Him, on those whose hope is in His unfailing love, to deliver them from death and to keep them alive in famine. You and I, as God's chosen people, that He has entered into, into this uh, solemn covenant through Jesus Christ, His eyes are upon us all the time. Now, you know, instinctively, our response to God's eyes being upon us all the time is a negative one. I mean, we've even enshrined in the songs that we teach our children. You know, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little hands what you do. For the Father up above is looking down on us. Fortunately, we add the words with love. But they don't seem to have that much effect. Because most of them say, oh no, he's watching. That's not the meaning at all here. It's more like when I go out to a park and I see my grandchildren playing, I don't take my eyes off them one moment. I don't care what else is going on. I don't care about cars. I don't care about the weather. I have my eyes all the time on those three grandchildren of mine. Oh, five, they get beyond, difficult beyond a certain number, but still, you know. <laughs> you, you, you try, you keep your eyes on them. Why? They, because they play freely. Because I love them. That's what it means. When, if you know that God's eyes are upon you, that's intended to give you freedom, not fear. And that's what you and I are, chosen people. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so His eyes are upon us as well. And so here's, here's the heart of substantial worship. It is joyful singing inspired by skillful music accompaniment that celebrates three things. The Creator God, the Sovereign God, and the Covenant God. These themes of creation, history, and covenant form the heart of Israel's worship. And especially the God who created, the God who is sovereign over history, and the God who is in a covenantal relationship with His people. These have been the enduring themes of Israel worship, and they are the enduring themes of your worship and my worship, and they are, they are capable of being expressed in so many different ways. And it is fitting for you and for me so to worship. So this is what Psalm 33 teaches us about substantial worship. Well, what happens when the worship service is over? What happens you've sung, you've listened to the Word of God, you have... Uh, being confronted with specific dimensions of God that calls forth praise and, and worship and other kinds of response that are appropriate. What about from weekend worship to weekday worship? From Monday to Saturday. And that's where the psalm ends. With these words. Read this with me. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In Him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in His holy name. May our unfailing love rest upon us, O Lord, even as we put our hope in You. We wait in hope. That's the last part of authentic or substantial worship, is that we are a people who are characterized by waiting in hope. Now, waiting in hope is very different from the other kind of waiting, in resignation, because you can't do anything about it. Ah, it's not in my hands anyway. God's not coming through, I just got to wait. That kind of waiting in resignation usually leads to bitterness and resentment. But as Ben Patterson pointed out, for the Christian, Waiting is not something that we do until we get whatever we are waiting for. Waiting is the means by which we get what we are waiting for. It is not something that passes the time until what you are hoping for shows up. 
The waiting itself is a means of getting what you want because of the things that are happening in you while you are waiting. And of course, none of us knows how long or how short a time that is. And so what I want to do is to finish this message by talking a little bit from Psalm 33 on what it means to wait in hope. And and all of us, all of us at some time in our lives, maybe in some aspects of our life, all of the time, are needing to wait in hope. First of all, it is a refusal to trust creation. The God of creation, yes, but it's a refusal to trust creation. Three things it talks about. Um, Nobody is saved by the size of a king's army. This is the temptation to trust in numbers. It can be shown up in many ways. One of the most common ways is, boy, if I can persuade enough people to think the way I do, then I can get my way. In church, in work, in neighborhood, whatever. The, The majoritarianism. Human strength. You're not saved by a warrior's strength. That's the opposite. I don't trust in all the people. I trust in myself. I can pull it off. I know what to do. Let me take charge. And then horses. And in the context of Psalm 33, he talked about the strength of a horse. But in prophetic literature in Israel, trusting in horses not only meant trusting in the strength of horses, it also meant trusting in speed. In Isaiah chapter 30 at one point, God says, In quietness and in repentance and in rest is your salvation. But you said you would have none of it. We will mount on horses and ride swiftly. And so it is a refusal to trust in creation, whatever form this takes. But this isn't easy. The reason it isn't easy is because you and I are creatures of space and time. The visible and the audible have a tremendous power upon us. And I was reminded of it all over again this week that it isn't easy. On Wednesday morning, I was in, in my office when Sheila was over at the house. Sham had gone to Mississauga to have breakfast with somebody. And she had called Sheila and said, I can't find my wallet anywhere. Is it at home? So Sheila looked all over, couldn't find the wallet. Well, I was busy doing the rest of the day. And it turned out, she, yeah, the wallet was lost. She couldn't find it. It had all of her credit cards in it. It had her checkbook in it. And I think we thought at that time it even had her social insurance number in it as well. That's all terrifying stuff to lose something like that. And you know... At a time like that, my temptation is not to trust in king's armies. I I don't put confidence in numbers. That's not a problem for me. And I certainly don't trust in my own strength. I have no delusions at all about my abilities. But horses, not strength, but speed, that's my problem. Because I like to get, once I know I have to do something, I want to get busy. Because when you lose your wallet, there's a lot of things you have to do. Because I want to get it done. Why? Because I want my life to get back to its smooth, predictable routines that I know and like so well. That's my vulnerability. That's my temptation. When I trust in creation, it's I've got to get these things done. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't do certain things. In fact, I went to the website. In fact, Sureshmi printed it out for me. When you lose a wallet, there's some things you're supposed to do. Let the police know and stuff. So I had to do all of them. The issue is not what you do or don't do, but do you trust in them? If God is sovereign over the nations, you can't trust in these things. And so, often, often during that day, I had to slow down. I forced myself to slow down and to focus instead upon God. <laughs> Your refusal to trust creation, but a deliberate, continued focus upon God. The God of creation, the God of history, and the God of covenant. <clears throat> and particularly for me, I needed to trust in the God who is in a covenant relationship with me. You know why? Because not only was there this anguish and this uncertainty and this interruption of all the regular work, all this creation of all this additional work that might, who knows, it might last for weeks at that time. Because these things take a long, long time, I'm told, to fix. 
not only was there that anguish within me i wasn't doing all that well in experiencing the peace of god and yet i had to stand up and preach this sermon to you today so i was facing a double anguish not only the anguish created by the circumstances but the fact that i wasn't doing all that stellar a job in responding properly and experiencing the peace of god the way i should and the way i'm going to be preaching to you on sunday Oh, and that was so good to be reminded that my God is in a covenant relationship with me. That He doesn't love me because I do everything perfectly. That I'm not qualified to stand up here and preach because I am flawless, but just as flawed as you are. I think He let all of this happen because I was preaching this sermon this week. So I just focused. I focused. Yes, of course I had to focus on the God of creation. Certainly I had to focus on the God of history. But most of all, I was thankful for this God who's in a covenant relationship with me. Who's, and like Andrea said, he's not going to let me go. And of course it happens through his word. This deliberate and continued focus on God happens through his word. Because, because this same God of creation who spoke through his word continues to do that through his word. His word still speaks to us. And I needed this word of God to do in me exactly what the word of God did in Genesis 1. It took a shapeless mass called the heavens and the earth and it shaped it into this magnificent world and this huge universe. That's what I needed God to do in my life. I needed him to take the chaos and I needed him to bring order and shape into it. And of course, I was so glad. I was so glad that that day I was focusing or I had to preach on Psalm 33. It's no, no accident, no coincidence that it came on this particular day when I was, because Wednesday is the day that I primarily focus on studying and getting all the final, sh- the sermon in its final shape together. Now, of course, it is impossible to focus on God through his word and not do the last step, which is to pray to him. Because that's the whole point. The whole point of having us focus on God is to then cry out to God. Cry out to asking God to do these same things. To create that order is in me. To rule. Ask him to, to pray that uh, whoever it is is going to find this wallet. God better be sovereign over their lives. And that's exactly how God led Sham to pray. And the next morning when I came in, Dr. Suresh Mishi said, that's exactly how God told me to pray for you as well. Because he is over the nations. And of course I asked him to, to continue to bless us because we are his covenant people. Not because we deserve it. And the interesting thing is, so Thursday morning I got up again, and of course, you know, the temptation is to get up on the horses and get going. And so I slowed down again, deliberately. And Thursday morning is when I actually write out the sermon. And so I spent the first two or three hours working on the sermon, getting it ready, and then I went out to the ravine to take some time to pray. I said, I'm not going to give in to this temptation to rush. I'm just going to wait. And it so happened that my reading for that day was a beautiful prayer from, uh, that I read the previous day, as a matter of fact, from Jehoshaphat. He was a king of Judah. And there were two armies that were coming at him. In fact, it was a vast army. And he prayed. And if you listen, listen to the prayer, you will see this is how Psalm 33 works out in practice. A man who waited in hope by focusing on God through his word and fueled prayer. This is how he prayed. Oh God, oh Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? See, he begins with the God of creation. Then he moves immediately to the God of history. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. The God of creation, the God of the nations. But his whole prayer is largely on the covenant God and his relationship with his people in covenantal terms. Oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague or famine, 
We will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name. And we will cry out to you in our distress. And you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir. See how they are coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as your inheritance. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power. Hey, not trusting in the size of a king's army. Not trusting in horses. Not trusting. He's living out Psalm 33 in this prayer. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are upon you. And all the men of Judah with their wives and their children and their little ones stood there before the Lord. When I read it the previous day, it touched my mind. This morning it spoke to my heart. Because this is exactly what I was. Actually, on the Wednesday night, uh, we, we were supposed to visit a couple from this church. So Sham and I went, visited them, and we came back home around 9.45, and the telephone was blinking. You know. I picked up the phone. There was a man. He said, hey, my wife and I were visiting here from Ottawa. We went to this restaurant in Mississauga in the morning, and we picked up your wallet from the parking lot. You know. And so he had tracked us down all day, and we got the wallet back, everything in exactly the same way that it was. But what if it hadn't? What if it hadn't come? I'd learned a good lesson. <laughs> this is still how we would have to wait. Andrea's going to come now and uh, she's going to lead us again in a song <clears throat> that celebrates Jesus as the hope of the nations. <clears throat> and I'll I want to do my blessing slightly differently. Last night as I was reading the scriptures before I went to bed, I was reading in Second Chronicles, which is where I am these days, and uh, it talks about the, the time when under Hezekiah's rule, the temple was restored again. And there's a lot in the story there about the Levites, who were the ones who were leading the people in worship. And, and uh, he, Hezekiah speaks very encouragingly of them because they were... They were, in fact, had done a better job of getting themselves ready for this than even the priests were. And the last verse in this chapter closed with these words. It says, and the Levites blessed the people, knowing that their prayer, and their prayers came up to God in heaven. And so basically, God said two things to me. Tomorrow in your benediction, you pray for the people, and you can pray with absolute confidence that I'm going to hear what you're going to pray for. Okay, that happened last night. Okay, now what do I pray for you? <laughs> This morning, I got up earlier, so it was a beautiful day, so I was out in the ravine praying, and I'd gone past the, that little uh, humber, whatever, runs through that place, and when we've had this much rain, there's a section in the road where I hear the, the sound of the flowing water loudly. This morning, when I got to that place, I didn't hear any such sound. It was a very, very soft kind of gurgle, and I said, how come? It should be roaring at this point. So I walked across there and I found these beavers or whatever had just got a whole lot of junk in there and had built kind of a dam and... And that's what I want to pray for you. The picture that came to my mind was, there is something in some of our lives that is the equivalent of that junk. Whether it's that bitterness that Andrea talked about, or you've moved away from God, or whatever it is. That is just blocking this free flow of the Spirit of God in your life, so you can live like this. Okay, so I'm going to pray, and I am absolutely confident that God is going to hear my prayers. Okay? And so you bring those to God. Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks to us. 
You speak in nature, you speak in your word, and the two work together in harmony. Your voice is one voice that speaks so clearly. And I thank you for this incredible privilege that you've given to me to pray for these people, my people, this congregation, of which I am a part, as humble and as weak as they are, as you have shown me this week, Father. With no right to pray for them except your glorious calling. And so, Father, I just lift them up before you. You know each heart. You said your eyes look down upon each one of your people. You know what is in the heart. You know what is good, and you know the junk the beavers have built, Father. It doesn't make any difference to how much you love us. In fact, you show us these things because you love us so much. So, Holy Spirit of God, will you show them unerringly, instinctively, those that need to know, will know exactly what it is that you're putting the finger upon. Thank you that you're not a God who just sends us away with free-floating guilt and anxiety, Father, that cripples us for the rest of this day and this week. No, you put your finger on anything if it's there. So you speak clearly, and God, in the name of Jesus, we will just break that logjam today. We blow a hole wide open in that stuff so that the river can flow in all of its power, in all of its things. So the water that flows from the south side of the altar may come in reviving, refreshing flow through their hearts, through their minds. We ask this in the name of our God, who is sovereign over the cosmos, who is sovereign over international affairs, and who is sovereign over the affairs of each human heart. In Jesus' holy name with thanksgiving.